attributes of God. Character of God, incommunicable attributes. How is God different from us? Um, we talked two weeks ago about God's independence or aseity. That is, God does not need us. Or Oh, and the outline. Uh, oh, oh, you know what? Garth. Garth went a half an hour ago to do the outline. Could someone someone who knows where that high-speed high Xerox machine is over in the office go and see if Garth is okay? Uh, <laughs> who could uh, run over there? Ben, you're on your way? Um, I think it must be that there was a backlog or the machine is broken or something like that. I think Garth was a fairly high-level executive with what? Pro Procter & Gamble. So he'll figure it out in the end. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to start without the outline, and then we'll get it. What I did was this old outline that you had was so brief, I just last night decided to print out a fuller outline. It ended up being three pages, which means you've got to make the stapler work, and the stapler jams in that machine sometimes. My guess is that's what's happened. Let's see incommunicable attributes. Does anybody know how to fix a, the stapler on a high-speed photocopier machine? <laughs> okay. Uh, incommunicable attributes. We did in independence. God does, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. And we talked about that. And then we talked about unchangeableness or immutability. And that is that uh, God is unchanging in his being and perfections, and purposes, and promises, yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. And then we brought up the question, does God change his mind? And after I spent 10 minutes or 15 about talking about how God, re God was going to judge Nineveh, and then Jonah preached, and then the people of Nineveh repented, and then God didn't judge them, the situation changed, and so God's attitude and action changed. And then we talked about how God was going to judge the Israelites in Exodus 32. And then Moses prayed and said, oh, Lord, please, God, don't judge them. And then God said, oh, and then God said, OK, I won't judge them. So there the situation changed. But what changed was Moses prayer. And in each of those cases, what happened was God's attitude and action toward the situation changed as the situation changed. And he had to do that if he was a just God. I mean, if the people repented and then he said, oh, too bad, I'll judge you anyway, uh, he really wouldn't be just and, and merciful. So, but then afterwards, someone came up to me and said, now, what did you say? Did you say that God changes his mind or not? So then I put in this kind of summary uh, after I went home last two weeks ago, this kind of summary uh, slide on that. Does God change his mind or did God change his mind and does he change his mind? And here's kind of a summary of what I wanted to say, and this will be on the outline um, when we get it here. He changes his present attitude towards situations as the situations change. And the people of Nineveh repented, of course, then he changed his attitude toward them. And he changes the way he acts toward us according to several variable factors, our obedience, our prayer, uh, other people's prayer, his plan, etc. But he never changes his eternal purposes. In that sense, he doesn't change his mind. So did God always, for all eternity, plan that Jonah would go to Nineveh eventually and, and um, Jonah would preach and the people of Nineveh would repent? Yes, I think God planned that all that would happen. Um, <clears throat> but he planned that he would bring it about through human means. And so did he plan that Moses would pray and that he would then respond to Moses' prayer? Yes, I believe so. 
Um, and so uh, I didn't, don't think he changed his eternal plans, but he did change his present actions. That's where we ended last time. Now, I want to talk this morning about God's eternity. <coughs> um, here's the definition at the beginning. God has no beginning or end or succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly Yet God sees events in time and acts in time. So I'm saying God is outside of time in his being, but he acts in time with respect to the creation. Now, uh, before I talk about that in more detail, I'm going to warn you that this is one of the hardest topics for us to even get a sense of understanding about in, in anything that we think about in all of theology. It's, it's hard because... We live in time, but where it's really hard to figure out what time is. And, um, and then to figure out what it would be to live outside of time is kind of beyond, it's beyond our, our comprehension in a way. And so this has been a topic that has taken up a huge amount of time for philosophers and theologians. John? John's telling me God created time so that everything wouldn't happen at once. I agree. <laughs> I think there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of truth in that. Actually, um, God created time, I think, so that events could happen and that He would progressively display His glory. So good. Well, let's try this. God is timeless in His own being. We start with uh, Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, in the beginning of what? Well, I think it means in the beginning. <laughs> I mean, the beginning of everything, the real beginning. And I think that's a, a little hint that it means uh, in the absolute beginning, that is, when time began, in the beginning of time. I know, somebody wants to tell me the joke. That's the first baseball game in the Bible, in the big inning. I know, it's okay. Okay. In the beginning, it just starts out. Like, here's where things begin. And then Exodus 3.14, um, at the passage about the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say, and he said, say, to the, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Can you read the, um, uh, it looks like, uh, Daryl told me at the beginning, it looks like there may be a, a bulb, that's burned out in the projector. Is it all right? We're going to read? Okay. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I know this stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The, um, the Hebrew, uh, God said to Moses, Echyeh, Asher, Echyeh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The idea is that uh, God uh, determines who he is, and um, it, it, we talked about in terms of independence, his uh, self-existence, he determines his own character and existence. The 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament made by Jews in the second century BC, God said to Moses, Ego eimi haon, I am the being one. This is a this is a present participle that has the idea of ongoing activity with the verb to be. So it has the sense of the one who continually is, the one who continually is the being one. I am the one who is always being. It it hints at an, an idea of eternal presence. Uh, I am the one who always is. I am. Uh, it doesn't really prove that, but uh, begins to suggest something to us. Then we get to Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. <clears throat> Now, tell me, this last row here, when is this starting to block the screen? Everything's above us. Oh, so we're okay? Uh, okay, can you still see everybody here? Okay. Um, so a thousand years in God's sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Well, here we'll put Genesis 1. Here we'll put Old Testament, New Testament. And here we'll put... two. No, I'm going to put it down below. Here we'll put 2006. And now 1,000 years would be back to 1,006. And this verse is saying that a thousand years to God, from 2006 to 1006, they're like yesterday. Now, who remember? Anybody here remember, Ed, remember something that happened in 1006? Really? Not really, no. 1066. Yeah, all right. <laughs> no, I mean, even if you could live a thousand years, you wouldn't remember anything from that long ago, would you? But can you remember what happened yesterday? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't remember yesterday. In fact, if you sat down and thought about it, you could list a lot of things that happened. Yeah. Yesterday, incidentally, was Saturday. Okay, and you could you could remember sort of what time you got up and what you did during the day. Or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night is just three or four hour period of time in which a guard in a city would stand watch. And, of course, your, your attention is really focused. When the next watchman comes to relieve you, then you can remember every rabbit uh, that crossed the path and, you know, every little kind of sound that happened in the night. It's very vivid in your mind the last three or four hours. So here it's saying that to God, that thousand years, it's, it's just like it just happened. It's just like, you know, it's like it's compressed into a very small moment of time. It doesn't say it's always present to him, but it says it's like it's very recent. Now, of course, when it says a thousand years to God is like yesterday or like a watch in the night, that means, of course, that God has forgotten what happened in 1005, right? Because that's a... No. 
No, a thousand years there is just really a figurative way of saying for all of past history to God, it's like, it's very vivid, it's like it just happened. Okay? Then we get into the New Testament, and Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Well, we had a thousand years as one day in the Old Testament, but now Peter comes along and says that one day, so that would be March 26th today, March 26th, 2006, that this one day is like a thousand years. It's like to God, it's kind of lasting forever. It's, uh, it's like it's standing still or always present in his consciousness. You ever have a time like that where it was a really wonderful time and time seemed to stand still and a whole bunch of time went by, but it, it didn't. Or a short period of time when it just seemed like a really long period of time. Well, anyway, for God, a day is like a thousand years, but a thousand years are like a day. And I think that means that even the smallest period of time seems um, like it's present to God in a, in a way, like always present in his consciousness, but all of past history is that way, too. Um, so all of past history con condensed into a tiny period of time, like yesterday or watching the night, or a tiny period of time expanded to always present. Now, those two verses together say this is a different way of experiencing events than we experience them. It's a different way of experiencing time than we experience it. Joyce? Um, would it be accurate to think then that, like Bob said, God created time so we wouldn't have that once? That's for our benefit, but to him, everything is a Yeah, well, see, I don't think, see, here's what happens. People start thinking about that, and they say, oh, that means to God everything's present. And I don't want to quite say that, uh, because it doesn't say a thousand years in your sight are like they're, right, like they're always right now. It's that they're like yesterday. So he knows the past that it's past, but all the past is like it's very, very vivid to his consciousness, like he doesn't lose any awareness of it. And then the little tiny moments are just like always present to him in some very vivid way. So I think he sees the past as past, the present as present, and the future as future, but it's it's like he he's he's seeing it all always in a very vivid way somehow. Margaret? Yeah, how we use our time is so significant. So if we uh, worship God or, or praise him, he is always going to take joy in that, uh, never lose consciousness of it. So, so a different relationship to time than we have. Every, in, in, incredible, infinite, well, or at least very extremely long period of time condensed into a tiny moment, tiny moment can expanded into continually vivid and present in his consciousness. Jesus then in John 8, 58 comes in controversy with the Jews and he's saying, truly true, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So <clears throat> here Jesus is um, during his earthly ministry and 
they say, well, you're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Here's Abraham 2000 B.C. <clears throat> and Jesus says, before Abraham was, here's Abraham. I'll draw Abraham up here. Before Abraham was, and Jesus, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was, which means he's older than 2000 years. <clears throat> but instead of doing that, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses a present tense verb, and he uses the same expression exactly, the same words <clears throat> as God had used to describe himself in Exodus 3.14, and the Jewish people know that he's claiming to be the God who is the I am who I am in Exodus 3, and they take up stones to stone him. But this is interesting that Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am. Now we're getting into this affirmation of somehow he is present. He is like continually always present. Throughout all of history, he is the I am, the one who is. It's a very unusual way of expressing this. Before Abraham was, I am. How long before Abraham was? Well, before. <laughs> before. And then before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I think those... Um, um, I don't know if you, if some of you know some Hebrew, may olam, may olam, ad olam, from ages or everlasting to ages or everlasting. So this is, again, kind of an affirmation of from way back here to way up here, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, as far as the psalmist can think back or Moses can think back. Now, um, before I go on to this next passage, there have been some people who say you can't really talk about before time because if you start talking about before, that means there's time. <laughs> and um, I, in the book that I wrote called Systematic Theology, I talked about God always existing before time existed. And... Uh, a friend of mine, a philosopher named William Lane Craig, who's a very good philosopher, he wrote a little article in a philosophical journal about how I was wrong to talk about God existing before time because that's self-contradictory. You know how philosophers can do that. Before time. Before, how can you say before? And so um, then I wrote a little response to him saying, well, you know, the Bible does talk this way. And uh, it does seem to be the only way we can talk about something that's hard to talk about. And... Uh, and actually, after I published the article then in 1997, um, I found two new verses that I didn't realize said this. I, I had uh, because because the English translation I was using didn't actually indicate this. But look at this: Second Timothy 1:9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is the ESV. We were working on a change of the RSV, Revised Standard Version, that said he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. Well, ages ago, that doesn't tell you much. That just says a long time ago. The King James Version said, before the world began, all right. But it's actually saying more than that. The New American Standard from all eternity. But we put in the ESV margin, before times eternal. And that is really a literal translation. Pro, pro, before, 
chronon is times, that's plural, it's a genitive plural, times, ionion, eternal, unending. And I think what this verse is saying then is that back here before, back here in eternity past, before there was any creation, God gave us grace. He chose us. And he did that before times eternal. That is, that time or times, going over periods of time, ages, times, that they are going to be eternal. They're going to last forever. We'll put an infinity sign here. But they started sometime. So in that phrase, before times eternal, has, I think, that it captures exactly the sense of what happened. There was a before, and that means God created time. But there's never going to be an ending, because time is going to go on infinitely into the future. And on our translation committee, when we were meeting, we met just one weekend in Nashville when we did this, and I remember sitting around the table, and I said, well, it's literally before time's eternal. And the, the rest of the translation committee said, yeah, that's true, but this is really a hard phrase for people to understand. Before times eternal, it doesn't. It doesn't really, so, so we ended up with before the ages began, which is pretty good because ages gives this idea of times, and then began is creation. Uh, but the uh, but literally in the margin before times eternal, and that is what the New American Standard has in the margin as well. Um, and uh, I think the NIV and some others now say before time began, which is all right. But but before times eternal literally is is, I think, what is giving us an understanding of what Paul's saying, that he's, he has in mind that in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created time, and then time went on forever. Um, Titus 1-2 uses the same phrase, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That is, before time's eternal. The King James Version, having just before the world began, didn't really clue people into the fact that it was talking about time being created and then time being eternal. And so I think people overlook these verses in the kind of ongoing debate, and, um, and I think they're important. Jude 1.25, again, a very interesting verse. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. And this is pro pontos tu ionos, before all uh, the ages, or the age, or the time, before all time. The, the, this can mean time, or age, or even uh, world. But when it's connected with before, and now, and forever, that's past, present, future. I think it has a time reference. This also, because of a difference in Greek manuscripts, before all time was not in the King James Version. And so it didn't enter into the thought of... Uh, of, um, of kind of the discussion of this topic, uh, but I think it's very clear it's there. So uh, the picture is God created time, and then time continues on forever. Conclusion, God existed before there was any time. He existed eternally. He never began. Now, I'll stop here. So here's what I'm saying. God existed before there was any time. He existed eternally. He never began. Try to think about what it would be like to exist without time. It's really hard to do. Hundreds of years ago, Augustine said, 
If no one asks me what time is, I know what it is. But if someone asks me, then I don't know. So now we're going to do a little experiment here. I'm going to see with my stopwatch if you can just stand still and not move forward in time for a few moments, all right? When my stopwatch hits 10, I want you to stop there and not go on beyond 10, all right? So here we go. Get ready. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Stop. Eleven, twelve, thirteen. Are you back there at ten? You're not? Try again. Seventeen. Stop at twenty. Eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Stop right there. Twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. You can't stop, can you? You can't even stop time for a second. And you can't, you can't let, there's no way we can have time stand still. How thin is the present then? Remember when I said 10? That's already in the past. You can't ever get back. When I said 20, it's already in the past. When I said the word past, that's already in the past. <laughs> oh my goodness, time, just hold on a second. Time is, it's, it just keeps on moving. We're not sure what it is. Well, a few years ago, I was standing around at a wedding reception, and I was a little bit bored, and my friend Dick Carhart, who was there, he's kind of bored, so I said to him, Dick, well, what is time? <laughs> well, he was a physics professor at the University of Illinois Chicago campus, and so it was kind of an interesting question to ask him. And you know what he said? When I asked him what is time, he said, we don't know. And then he said, and I teach the course on it. (laughs) He said, we can measure time, but we're not sure what it is. Now I looked up in a dictionary. Time. A non-spatial continuum. Non-spatial means it's not space. Got that figured out. It's not space. A non-spatial continuum. A continuum is kind of an extension of things in which there are no parts. It goes on. A non-spatial continuum in which events occur in in apparently irreversible sequence. You can't change them around. But all that dictionary definition said was it's not space, and it, and, it, and, it, and it stretches out, but we're not sure what it is. Very interesting. So now what would it be like for God to exist without time, that is, without things happening one after another in his own being, without having what people call a sequence of moments? That is, something happening one after another. I think it's just... And we can get some analogies of just kind of being in a state where you're really happy and you don't know, notice that time is going on. That's a very faint analogy, but still time is going on. And when I count the stopwatch, then you know it is going on. So this is what be, would be like for God to exist in a timeless eternity is apparently impossible for us to think about in any significant way or with any useful analogies. 
it's completely different from our whole mode of existence. It's truly an incommunicable attribute. It's a way in which God is very, very, very different from us. But I think then that God created time along with the creation of the universe. And physicists, in fact, say uh, that time and space and matter all go together. You, you can't have one without the other. So what I'm thinking here is that this whole box shows that God created time along with when he created. <laughs> that time was just part of what he created. And I think it's going to go on forever and never end. But I don't think <clears throat> it ever started. Garth, thank you for an hour of faithful work. I'll have to get your tape. Yeah, <laughs> get the tape. Thank you, yeah, thank you. And I didn't know I was asking you for something that hard. <laughs> and Wayne. And Wayne, thank you. And your aide. And Ben, yeah. thank you all. What happened, the, the machine jammed? Over and over and over and over. Over and over. Oh. We did it then. Yeah. Wayne and Ben. All right, good, thanks. I said, I thought you'd get it done eventually. <laughs> okay. Good. All right, so I think God created time along with the creation of the universe in Genesis 1. What I'm saying here is the majority view, vast majority among all Bible-believing theologians throughout history. Um, Non-Christians have different views of time. They don't know what it is. They think it's circular. They think it repeats, etc., we have a view that says time is going forward, and that gives meaning to our lives, and that means that we're headed toward a goal, and God has a purpose for the for history of the world. And that's very important in terms of how Christians think about think about all of life. The alternative is a minority view, and that is that God has always existed in time, also. And interestingly enough, when I taught at Trinity, one professor held that. His name was John Feinberg. He was a colleague of mine. And he was writing a book on the doctrine of God, and he began to think that God has always existed in time. And so he kind of wrote up his chapter on it and circulated it to the rest of the department. And the other seven of us or so in the department all read this, and we, and we kind of got together in a long meeting in our department and said, because he wanted to be sure he wasn't just kind of going to lose his job over this or something. And uh, we all said to him, John, we don't agree with you. We think you're wrong, but we, don't think you've, we think you're trying to be faithful to Scripture. We don't think you've gone outside the bounds of orthodoxy. But the problem is that if he's going to say that God has always existed in time, then you don't just have time going infinite, infinitely that way. You've got time going infinitely this way, infinitely back this way, way, way back this way. Farther than, but see, if it's infinite, where, am I ever going to get back there? No, if it's infinite. And pro also, if it's infinite, if it really is infinite, as time has always as it existed infinitely, then could you ever get to 2006? See, the problem is you can never get to the present because it's infinitely far in the past. Well, anyway, you could think about that if you can't get to sleep tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then I just put this for discussion of whether it makes sense to think of, speak of something happening before time. See this little article 
in this uh, Philosophia Christi, it's a journal of Christian philosophy that I've only ever put one article in responding to Bill Craig, with whom I agree on almost everything, but not this. B, God sees all time equally vividly. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So we talked about that. You can remember yesterday. God can remember yesterday. God can remember a thousand years. He can remember 10,000 years, just like you can remember the last few hours. It's all vivid. Um, and that doesn't mean, now here, again, you get philosophers saying, oh, if God is timeless, if he exists outside of time, he doesn't know if Abraham Lincoln is still president or not. It all looks like it's present to him. And the Bible doesn't speak that way. And so I want to guard against that and say, no, let's speak the way the Bible speaks. He doesn't, it doesn't say a thousand years <clears throat> in your sight <clears throat> are like they're present when they're past. It says it's like it's yesterday, all right, when it's past. It's still he sees the past as past. And in fact, um, and then he looks into the future, declaring the end from the beginning. Let's see, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now we get here, and we see that going into the future, God declares things that are going to happen in the future, and so he knows what's going to happen in 2007, and 2008, and 2009. He knows what's going to happen on into eternity future. And so not only does he know the long ages past, as if they were past, but he knows it all very vividly. And not only does he know the present, and it's continually present to his consciousness in some way, but he knows all the things that will ever happen in a future that's never going to end. How many things is that? How can God know an infinite number of things? Because he's an infinite God, I guess. But that's really an astounding thought. And he declares from ancient times things not yet done. And God sees events in time and he acts in time. Now here, I don't want, to, I don't want any of us to say that he doesn't act in time or he can't be in time in terms of his actions or he doesn't know what day it is today. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So God waited for ages and centuries and then Pow, right there when the right time was, God sent his son to be born of Mary and born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And uh, Acts 17, Paul talks about past, present, and future. That is, what did God do in the past? In the times of ignorance, God overlooked. What does he do in the present? Now he commands all present people everywhere to repent. Why? Because in the future, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So, um, God has acted, past, present, and future, and Paul has no problem declaring that. D, here's to overcome one other misunderstanding. You and I are always going to exist in time. Uh, Revelation 21, 24, it looks about, talks about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. It says, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Well, that means the, the glory, that is the, the, the wonders and the goods and the 
uh, honorable things of the nations they're going to bring into the new into the heavenly city but at one moment they're outside of the city at another moment they come into the city if we're casting our crowns before God's throne or the 24 elders are casting their crowns before the throne at one moment you've got the crown in your hand and another moment you're casting it down that means there's a succession of moments things happen in sequence one after another the revelation 22:5 uh, through the middle of the street of the city is the river of life also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So there is time in the heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem. There is time. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will live in unending time, but we will live in sequence of doing one thing after another. I think that's because we are finite beings, and because we are finite, we're not infinite like God. We do things in sequence, one after another. Application of God's eternity. I guess that should have been E. What's the application of all this to our lives? Now, there was, I, had, I didn't call on somebody earlier over here. Yeah. How do you just think that perhaps time doesn't exist at all, but that it's God's provision for human conceptualization? Yeah, perhaps it doesn't exist at all. Well, no, the Bible talks about past, present, and future. It talks about days and days and months. Conceptualize uh, the Bible without a concept of time. Yeah. If God has existed forever and He will in the future, yeah. maybe it's a provision for our Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe time doesn't exist, but it's just our conception. No, I think that the question is whether the creation is real and whether time is a part of the creation. And I think, yes, the creation is real. And once you have matter and planets spinning around, you've got things happening one after another. I think you have time. I think you have time. Yeah, okay, Keith. Wait, is it possible that before the um, word <coughs> read, that from God's perspective, there really wasn't a purpose or a need for time, and that it is creative genius and for our, and by grace, He created time to give us a frame of reference going forward. Yeah, I think there's good uh, was wisdom in that, Keith. Is it see if I can say it rightly for what you've said? Is it possible there wasn't any need of time when God before God created, but then He created us to create it to give us a frame of reference in which we could understand things. I think that's, I mean that's true, and I'm agreeing with John said too. I think I think God created time so that events could happen, um, and it is part of God's wisdom to progressively unfold more of His glory over time, so that we and angels would see it and rejoice, and I think so that God would see it and rejoice. Um, so it's a it's a vehicle in which his glory is progressively unfolded. At least it's that. Mm -hmm. What else on this? Application to our lives. Surely one thing, what Margaret said, if God remembers everything vividly, then what we do each day, it, it's another way of understanding how it is so significant. It's that when God rejoices in us, he rejoices in us eternally, and that gives... Oh, he's going to remember eternally the things that we've done for him and, that, and the love that we've had for him and things like that. That's really good. Anything else on application? 
application. Yeah, Joyce? Would he accurate to say that God functions in time, but he's not limited to it? Yes, I think. Is it accurate to say God functions in time? Yes, he acts in time, but he's not limited to it. He's not. Although, this brings up a question I didn't talk about. I do not think even God can change past events. Um, there's the whole Bible is through, full of things. Once they've happened, they've happened. They, they don't go back and they don't change. Um, I don't know what happened when the sun stood still there, but, but the people were still fighting the battle, so time was still going on. So maybe the way by which, I guess the sun, I guess maybe the earth just miraculously ceased its rotation for some time and God prevented it all from falling to pieces somehow. Um, but, uh, but no, I think, um, I don't think God can change past events. He holds us accountable for and rewards and judges us on the basis of what has happened. So, um, so, but otherwise, he's not limited by time. Um, he's not limited in knowing what's going to happen past, present, and future. And he's Lord over time, so he does things at the right time. So in that sense, once he's created it, I think he acts within it. Yeah, I forgot your name. Chuck. So will we eternity time will matter? Yeah, I, in eternity will time, you know, I think it will matter. I think we might even have watches to meet each other at a right time for, for lunch, you know, and so, <laughs> or whatever. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, yes. Um, yeah, what happens if you miss your appointment? Well, you, you get another chance, but John says we won't be late. <clears throat> yeah, I think we will exist in time, and because... There's something about doing things, you know, setting a goal and then working toward a goal and seeing progress toward a goal. That's part of who we are. And I think God's going to let us do that in the future, too. Um, make plans, bring about projects and things. I, I think about not being that. I do think that part of our growing in imitation of God is, um, is growing in our not being tyrannized by time or not letting time uh, defeat us, but being on time, which has been a struggle for just personally uh, for, for me. Uh, that's just an area which I haven't done so well in the past, and now I think we're doing, uh, how much are we doing better? Yeah, we have in the last four or five years done better, I think, on this. Um, but... Um, Always, you know, this idea of always rushing, the, the person who's always a day late and a dollar short, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that, now that I say that, what about this manuscript that's due to the publisher? Well, I better, <clears throat> okay. So, um, but there is, um, there is an application. God always does things at the right time. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't ever do things late. He doesn't just rush because he got behind. And he doesn't uh, delay, and he just, he always does things at the right time. And growing in holiness and sanctification, I think a part of that may be growing in wise use of time, gaining wisdom so that we do things at the right time, so we don't commit to more than we can do, but don't misuse our time, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time, says Paul. So growing in our relationship to time and our use of time is part of, I think, growth in the Christian life. Anything else on application to this? What's your name? 
Rosemary. Well, you know, I've always thought of Ruth time, yeah. time, and month, and day. Yeah. You're applying everything that happens. You're making the thing now that everything happens is time. Everything that happens is, yeah. By time, I mean things happen one after another. <laughs> the, it's applying more to time than I had ever thought about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, interesting topic. Let's see. It's 9.12. I've got a few more minutes. Let's see if we can do this other omnipresence. This is applying to space something like what we apply to time. But here we're saying that God is not limited by space. And God's being is not limited by space. And if time was a hard thing to grasp, this is also a hard thing to grasp. So God does not have size or spatial dimensions. Oh. And is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. So I'm trying to give a balanced definition again. First, God is present everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take my, the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that is, poetically again, as far as the psalmist could think of going away, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And uh, Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, God says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So here, wherever you go, God is there. <clears throat> if I send heaven, you are there. You are there. It isn't just part of God. It's God himself. It's all of God. He is present. And Jeremiah uh, 23, he's, he's a God everywhere. Um, but God does not have spatial dimensions. 1 Kings 8, 27. This is in conjunction with building of the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? <clears throat> Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, says Solomon. So he, he can't be contained uh, in the temple, although he's present in the temple, but he's, he's, he's greater than all of that. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Um, so God doesn't have size or spatial dimension. He's present everywhere, but no, no space can contain him. Not the temple, not the universe. It can't contain him. Again, I think, like we said with time, this is saying that God has a relationship to space that is different than anything that we can think about. I, I don't think we should say... I don't think we should say if if uh, if this is the universe. I don't think we should say that God is just like steam or vapor that's kind of dispersed or light that's dispersed throughout the universe because that's still saying that He has size. And I don't think that we should say that God is just kind of a bigger space around space because that's still saying that He has size. It's rather saying that God is a being who is present everywhere, but doesn't have size. It's just, he's present. 
Now, so when we say light is present, well, that kind of extends to a certain length, but it's finite. And even space, I guess, is finite. But God is just present. He's a being that's just present. That's hard to think of. There are some analogies. I mean, you could say uh, where certain mathematical things like, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Where is that? <laughs> well, 2 plus 2 equals 4 just is. It isn't quite any place. <laughs> But it's it's kind of a truth or a concept. How do you find it? Yeah, how do you find it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, these analogies are are hard for us to understand. So how? But so how do we think of God? We think of Him as being present, always present, everywhere present, filling space. Where if I heaven or Sheol, you are there. You are there. You are there. It's God Himself who is present. Now, does God manifest his presence or show his presence differently in different places? Yes, he acts differently in different places. In the Old Testament, he was especially present. Uh, he was present sort of in the whole world to keep it in existence, but he was especially present among the people of Israel. And then among the people of Israel, he was especially present in the tabernacle. And then in the tabernacle, he was especially present over the Ark of the Covenant where his glory dwelt. There he showed his presence. He manifested with his glory, this bright shining light that surrounded him. He manifested his presence in a stronger way. And I think we know in our own lives that sometimes we have a stronger manifestation or awareness of God's presence. Sometimes he makes his presence known to us in a more strong way. And <clears throat> that is a kind of presence to bless. All right? But I think that we can talk about God having presence in different ways, sometimes just to keep the universe existing, sometimes to bless, but sometimes there's a presence even to punish. And so there's this kind of frightening passage in Amos 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, um, and he said, those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. This is a judgment passage. Not one of them shall escape if they dig into Sheol. From there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. A terrifying passage is saying, if God is going to judge, you can't flee anywhere to get away from him. There's his presence to punish. Sometimes he has a presence to sustain. Colossians 1 says, in him, in Christ, all things hold together. I think he's sustaining the universe every moment and keeping all things in the universe from passing into non-existence. And then Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds the universe. I think in the verb uh, tense there gives the idea of continually upholding the universe by his word of power. Again, the idea that he's keeping everything operating in the way that it exists and sustaining it. And then there are some times where his presence is manifested in a special way, a presence to bless. So 1 Samuel 
4.4, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, who were over the Ark. And so there was God's special presence to bless. And Revelation 21 predicts a time in the future when we ourselves will be in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and we'll know God's presence to bless in a special way. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So in the way that God, the Bible normally talks about God's presence, it means this third kind, this presence to bless. Uh, and, and to be separated from God then means to be distant from his blessing, to be Uh, cut off from his blessing. In his presence, in your presence, is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, now the the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Um, That is, again, presence to bless where he's present. And uh, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So Christ dwells in us in a special way, a special way to bless and bring new life in a way that he does not, he is not present in the lives of unbelievers. <coughs> Questions about that. How do we have application to the idea of God's omnipresence or everywhere presence? Well, if God is everywhere present with his whole being, um, where will he be to hear your prayers? Everywhere, right? Wherever you go, no matter where you go, whatever part of the world you go to, God is there uh, to hear your prayers. Um, where, where will he, where can we flee from him to disobey him so that he doesn't notice? <laughs> nowhere, nowhere. We can't flee from him. Uh, we have to flee to him. Um, Wendy? What I want to say is this topic actually makes hell very much more significant. It makes what? Hell. Makes hell more significant. Because um, instead of people just living without God on earth all their lives and then going to hell on God, they live on earth with some presence all their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So Wendy's saying, as far as the doctrine of hell, it's very, that's very hard because when people have lived on earth without God, there's still been some manifestation of God's blessing in the earth generally because of grace. But to live with no blessing from God, but actually only punishment, that would be very, very, that would be very awful. Yeah. What's your name? Phil. Phil? I'm having trouble with phrasing this question, but it seems to me talking with... <clears throat> people in universities with so-called higher education that evil drives out the presence of God. Where does that concept come from or how am I just understand it? It's like just talking here about hell. It kind of conveys the idea that God can't be there and God can't be there. And yet it says in there you yeah. know that yeah. I'm sorry that I didn't get that question. Yeah, the question is, I mean, is it right to talk about God's presence in hell in any sense? The reason it's hard to talk about is usually when the Bible talks about presence, it's a shorthand way of saying present to bless. So um, uh, in your presence is fullness of joy, the psalmist says, and that kind of thing. 
and um, uh, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. talks about being absent. Now, I think that the doctrine of God's omnipresence, if I take the wings of the more, if I, if I descend to Sheol, you are there, that kind of thing. There is some sense in which God is present, even in hell, but it isn't the normal way the Bible talks about present. It's, his pre- it's, it's being present just to, to bring judgment, really. And so um, where you say, God, people say that evil drives out the presence of God, yes, in the sense that it drives away his blessing. Mm-hmm. Like God will not associate himself into to evil. Correct. Yeah, he won't show his goodness, he won't show his blessing, he won't show the excellence of his character, he'll just show judgment where there's evil, where there's tremendous evil. <laughs> so, Well, unless he brings grace to, to save people. Okay, well, well, I think, let me see, it's 9.25 and I ought to, I'll take one more, go ahead. <laughs> Is God present every place and the Spirit is present every place? Yes. The Spirit is uh, one of the persons of the Trinity. We'll get to later. God is, he is present every place, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although the human nature of the Son is just in heaven now. Let's pray. Lord God, when we think about these things, we just say how how great you are. Infinite. Existing eternally outside of time. Existing eternally without any dimensions or size, but just being present. And you are present. You are present everywhere, and you're present here, Lord, and we give you thanks. Lord, grant us this week to live with an awareness of your eternity and yet to imitate more and more your wise use of time and space. We give you thanks. Amen. See you next week.